This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please support us on Patreon over at patreon.com geeks or via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. And to want to give a special thank you to Marco Mueller, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so now let's get to our show. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 544 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. I'm David Barr Kirtley author of the book Save Me Please and Other Stories. Publishers Weekly writes, Visceral settings and robust characters will have readers marveling at how much Kirtley is able to fit into a limited page count. For SFF fans with no time to sink into a doorstopper, these concentrated doses of genre goodness will hit the spot. So again, the book is called Save Me Please and Other Stories, and it's available now on Amazon.com. And our guest today is Gregory Frost, author of novels such as Fitcher's Brides, Tane, and Shadowbridge. He's a member of the Interstitial Arts Foundation and the Liars Club Writers Group, and he's taught creative writing at the Clarion Writers Workshop and Swarthmore College. And in this interview, we'll be discussing his new novel, Rhymer, and his short story collection, Attack of the Jazz Giants, and other stories. And now here's our interview with Gregory Frost. All right, so we're here with Gregory Frost. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Okay, so let's start off with your book, Attack of the Jazz Giants and Other Stories. So how'd that book come about? <laughs> oh, well, that was a short story collection um, that uh, Golden Griffin at that time was doing a series of collections of uh, various science fiction, fantasy, horror writers and asked to uh, to do one of me, which kind of surprised me. And I said, sure, because I'd written a, a fair number of short stories. A couple of them had gotten a, a good deal of attention, um, were finalists for various awards in the field, et cetera, et cetera. And so I put together a collection of old and new stories and pitched it to Gary Turner at, uh, at Golden Griffin. And that's how it came. That's how it came to be. Yeah, and this is a really nice looking short story collection. I mean, the the edition I have, it's hardcover, there's a dust jacket, it's got interior illustrations. It's just a really first class production. Yeah, Golden Griffin only did hardcovers. So you were on your own to go ahead and try to get a pack or a paperback representation or ebooks or anything else. They just wanted to produce hardcover books. And the cover art and the interior art is by uh, an artist named Jason Van Hollander who weirdly enough uh, was both uh, an Arkham House cover artist um, and also my neighbor. He lives a block away from me. Uh So it was a very strange experience because I could just walk over to his house (laughs) and, you know, look over the illustrations and talk about things. And he took photos of me and used me in in, uh, at least one of his interior illos. I won't say where. Um, But he liked to do that. He liked to pose people and then sort of, distort them and uh, and do very strange things to uh, to their expression so a lot of pen and ink work then photoshopped and 
and rendered uh, arcane and, and in many cases horrifying. <laughs> no, it's it's really, really cool. So was that pretty typical for Gold and Griffin that they did those sorts of interior illustrations or was that unusual at all? I think it was unusual for them. Jason petitioned to do interior illos uh, for the book and they were happy to have them. So he's, he sort of championed that and they didn't resist. So that's how it ended up with, uh, with the uh, illustrations that are in there. Mm. And so this book, it covers stories that you published, starting with your first published story in 1981, up right. till there was a, there's an original story from 2005 when the book came out. Correct. So what was it like uh, going back to the stories from the, the early 80s when you were putting the book together? Um, it, was, it was a strange journey, I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, rereading those stories in particular after, well, 20 years. Um, of, of really not looking at them or doing anything with them was kind of, kind of a jolt. Uh, and there were stories from that time period that simply didn't make the cut because I went, no, this is dated or I just don't feel this is the quality of what I want, et cetera, et cetera. And some of them I pulled just because thematically they didn't seem like I, it was like I had too many of this kind of story, so I want some of that kind of story, that that sort of thing, if that makes sense, to sort of balance it all out. So I wanted a little science fiction. Uh, I tend to lean into horror, um, but I also wanted some comedy um, because I like writing comic stories and, uh, and just tried to come up with a, a balanced collection. And the uh, Gary Turner was delighted with it, and it got incredible reviews. Uh, just people would write reviews and say, "Why, why weren't these stories up for awards? Why haven't we seen these before?" Et cetera, et cetera. And Gary was just uh, over the moon with uh, with the the kinds of response that the uh, the collection got. You you said that you wanted to include some funny stories, and I thought it was really striking. The book has a foreword by Karen Joy Fowler and an afterword by. John Kessel. John Kessel, yeah. And they both say, basically, describe your writing as angry and funny. Like, if I had to pick two words, it would be angry and funny. I think that's that's fair. Yeah, there was, a, uh, there was an academic some years ago at the International Conference on the Fantastic and the Arts who uh, wrote a paper for that particular uh, conference on what she referred to as the savage humanists. Uh, she had created this category and John Kessel was one of them. And I'm another one in that she, she grouped in that, in that collective uh, umbrella title of savage humanists that we were writing from some furious part of ourselves, but we were doing so with a, a very dark line of humor in the, in the fiction as we went along. Mm -hmm. But so you, you endorse that view. You do, you, you think of yourself as a savage humanist. I, <laughs> Uh, I suppose I do. Uh, I, I can understand what she was saying in, in her paper, or why she was uh, putting us in that category. Um, I really don't think about it at the time I'm writing the story. I don't think, oh, what am I going to do that's savage and funny <laughs> today? You know, it just doesn't come up as a question. Um, but I'm perfectly happy if the stories have a certain, uh, what do I want to say, not not angry exactly, but a sort of jaundiced view of of civilization and humanity in general. At the same time that it's you know pulling humanity's pants down, I'm <laughs> I'm, I'm good with that. 
And you and John Kessel, I think, are quite good friends. Were you yes. both sort of savage humanists before you met, or did you kind of influence each other to become savage humanists? Or I, su- I suspect we were both on our paths to, uh, to self-destruction and savage <laughs> humanists uh, in advance. Uh, John moved to North Carolina, uh, I think, about a year after I had moved to North Carolina. And when he got there, he... Uh, he went through the CIFWA, the Science Fiction Writers of America uh, address book and found that I lived in Raleigh and he lived in Raleigh and called me up and we had lunch. And he was doing that with everybody that lived in the area just so he could meet some new people uh, who were, you know, sharing his his interests and, and writers. Um, and he and I just hit it off immediately and have stayed best friends ever since. So going on what... Th- 40 years it's kind of scary <laughs> yeah yeah a long time and so you you must have published some stuff at that point to have been in the CIFWA directory yes like what point in your career were you at when you met John Castle I'm trying to think that was probably I think I probably had published one novel um, and a batch of short stories at that point and that was it had you, you been to Clarion at that point? Yes, I had been to Clarion in 1975. Um, and John has, I, I don't, was John at Clarion? He was at a different Clarion. He, uh, our other close friend, James Patrick Kelly, was dis, is distinguished because he was at Clarion twice, damn him. Uh, <laughs> you know, he got away with that. I don't think anybody else ever has, but I, I don't know that John went to Clarion at all. He worked uh, with James Gunn a great deal out in Lawrence, Kansas, uh, which is where he got his uh, PhD and his MFA and and all of that. So, So, because you talk a little bit in the book and in the author's notes about your Aquarian experience, you say that uh, Damon Knight was uh, one of of your instructors. True. Yeah, in those years uh, when Clarion was at Michigan State uh, University, which is where I went to Clarion, uh, the last two weeks, were Damon Knight and Kate Wilhelm every single year. Now, because of Damon and Kate no longer being with us, uh, the last two weeks are usually whoever the people at San Diego UCSD put together as a tag team kind of to do the last two weeks of of Clarion teaching. But yeah, Damon was an amazing – Damon and Kate were both really quite amazing. And you – I mean, people – I mean, Damon Knight is best known to me in addition to – uh, co-founding Clarion is the author of To Serve Man, the short story yes, that was adapted course. into the Twilight Zone episode. Yes, that's right. Yeah, I think I think that was both a blessing and a curse for Damon because that was what everybody knew uh, about him. And that's what everybody thinks of when, when they think of Damon Knight. Uh, but he was an, um, an amazing teacher. Um, and, uh, and so was, and so was Kate as well. Kate was a, a, a terrific teacher. Um, so I don't know what else to say on that front. Well, yeah, we'll, that's we'll, what everybody remembers him for. I think you say that uh, there was that he would uh, shoot students with a squirt gun, and at one point he ran into a door or something while you were at Clarion. Yeah, yes, he he made there was a running gag, so to speak, that every year Damon would at some point during the week pull out a squirt gun and and go hunting students. So everybody came with it, you know. Squirt guns, you know, squirt rockets, whatever, you you (laughs) know, the the firepower increased with every year, I think. 
and uh, he was chasing us through a dormitory. We were the only people in the, the entire dormitory, uh, which was, I think, Justin Morrill College. And we were in the bottom, in the basement of the dormitory. So the whole place was empty except for us. And Damon, at some point, smacked into a door when I was someplace else. I think most everybody was someplace else and, and pretty much retreated for the night. And at some point, we couldn't find him. And so we all went to the room, which was uh, separate quarters for, for Damon and Kate, and knocked on the door. And it was like being five years old again because, we're you know, Kate Wilhelm opens the door and we said, can Damon come out? <laughs> and she said, no, Damon has to stay in the rest of the night and close the door on us. And that was the end of that. So uh, so we'd, we'd had our squirt gun time. And without him, it just wasn't the same. So we didn't shoot anybody else. It was funny because, you know, I went to Clarion at Michigan State University in 1999. And ah. I knew, you know, and I knew it was, or I was told anyway, it was a tradition that you would have these squirt gun fights at Clarion. And I don't know if it ever, yeah. if I just forgot or it sank in that that was sort of Damon Knight's thing and that that tradition had continued for, you know, 25 years. Uh, yeah. Because of him. Well, and, and by 1999, you had, you guys had artillery you, i mean monster <laughs> water soakers yeah super, super soakers yeah super soakers yeah so yeah yeah i had taught clarion in fact in 1996 and it was super soaker land so we we had an all out war one afternoon but it was outdoors as opposed to you know chasing people through a dormitory so. yeah it just really struck me reading the author's notes in this book that you seem to be an author who you know, are not like a solitary writer off somewhere writing your fiction, but are very much involved in a community of writers. They're pretty much every story in the author's note. It says, you know, the story came out of a conversation with some writer or was, you know, workshopped at such and such workshop or something. Um, do you see yourself that way as a, a very sort of community writing community based sort of writer? I don't, you know, I don't think of myself that way. I think of myself as a solitary writer. But then when you say that, I go, yes, well, a lot of those stories came from uh, the Sycamore Hill uh, Writers Workshop that, uh, again, John Kessel spearheaded uh, originally in North Carolina um, and is now being run by uh, Richard Butner, who's taken it on now that uh, John's retired from doing that. Um and it's, it came up here for two years when they weren't doing it anymore and John had, had quit doing it. And I ran it for a couple of years at Bryn Mawr College. And then uh, it returned to North Carolina to a place called, I believe, Wildwood or Wild Acres uh, in the mountains of Western North Carolina, about an hour out from Asheville. Um, and it's just a wonderful, it's a wonderful time. It's a wonderful week to go and basically go crazy for a week reading all of these stories and trying to give people uh, functional, exceptional feedback. And frequently the stories are so good, there's almost nothing to say. Yeah. So yeah, a lot of my stories I think have been helped by taking them to Sycamore Hill and getting feedback from writers like Karen Joy Fowler, Jonathan Lethem, um, Bruce Sterling. Um, God, I can't remember. Connie Willis, uh, Nancy Kress, just just a ton of writers. Well, in the note for your story, Madonna of the Maquiladora, you say, the yes. story once written had to walk a gauntlet where 14 other astonishingly fine writers pummeled and lashed it. I don't know if you're being... 
<laughs> arch there. I mean, slightly arch there. Yeah. 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 But uh everybody had something to contribute. Um the there's one particular time where I took a piece of a work, a, a novel called Fitcher's Brides, to uh to the workshop. And Jonathan Lethem was one of the, the people in the workshop that that particular year. And I workshopped the opening, I think, three chapters of the book. And everybody had interesting, nice things to say about it. And it came to Jonathan and he said something along the lines of he had just come from teaching a workshop in Ohio for a couple of weeks. And he had this this epiphany while he was teaching the workshop about how much uh, guidance and information the writer has to put into the beginning of the novel. And so he took apart the very first chapter of the book in a way that nobody else was doing or had done. And it was revelatory. It was just one of those moments where you go, oh my God, I see, I see the light. Um, <laughs> And, uh, and it was a great moment and nobody else would have done that. I think, I, th I think just being there and, and, uh, talking with Jonathan was the thing that just blew that, that story wide or that novel rather wide open. That opening changed everything in the book. Yeah. I mean, when I, when I teach writing, one of the things that I, you know, teach science fiction writing I, that I really emphasize or try to emphasize is how important it is to be clear what the world is like early on oh, yes. because yeah. in fantasy and science fiction, there's such a broad range of possibilities and often a story will start out and it'll talk about soldiers or something like that. You can't picture are these like stormtroopers. Are they like, you know, mus musketeers, you know, there's just not enough <laughs> specificity for you to even picture yes. what, what the setting is at all. And so, yes. yeah, I think that's really important. Yes. I, I've run across that many times where the, the beginning of the story is, you know, since they're writing a science fiction story, they must tell you uh, for the first three or four pages, the entire history of, you know, fusion drives or, <laughs> you know, something that got them to the point where the story launches and you finally, and, and that's sort of one of my go-to phrases too, is that the one of, if not the single most common critique I hear in writing workshops of somebody's story is your your story starts on page three because the writer has, you know, they've given you the whole CV of the, the character that they're writing about, or they've got the character sitting in a room thinking about what he's going to do real soon now, um, you know, for <laughs> a few pages. And then he finally gets up and he goes and he does what he's been thinking about for three pages. And you go, that can all go. That can all be cut. There's no reason for any of that to be there. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and getting back to the community thing, I also want to mention that you're in this group called the Liars Club, which I gather is yes. sort of this clustered, uh, authors clustered around Philadelphia. Is that right? Yeah. It's, uh, it's a, it's a, what do I want to say? It's a collective that Jonathan Mayberry, who now lives in San Diego, uh, and I started roundabout, I guess, 2007, 2008. Uh, there was just an occurrence where we knew a bunch of writers, uh, all of whom had something coming out within the next six months to a year. And um, they were all friends. Um, and we kind of hung out and drank beers together and chatted. And we thought, why don't we do like a group, uh, group events, group signings, group everything? Because such and such is 
audience will come and maybe buy my book and my audience will come and maybe buy Jonathan's book. And, you know, so we did that for a couple of years where we, uh, we went around to mostly independent bookstores in the Philadelphia area and did group signings, group events of one sort or another, uh, which were an awful lot of fun to do because, and I'm, I'm sure you'll know this, there's nothing more, I, I don't know, suicidal uh, driving than uh, sitting in a bookstore by yourself, hmm. trying to make eye contact with people coming through the door. Because at least in my experience, the first thing they do is they see that there's a writer sitting there with their books and they immediately look everywhere else but at the writer with their book and they go right past you like you don't exist. So if there's a group, it's a lot harder to get around. It. <laughs> yeah. It's like a, the, the defensive line sort of. Exactly. Know. Yeah. 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 We're pretty much all linebacks. Yeah. <laughs> um, actually speaking of Jonathan Mary, uh, Mayberry, that uh, kind of brings us to your new book, Rhymer. Do you want to talk mm-hmm. about how that came about? Um. Somewhere, I think I'm going to say 20, somewhere between 2012 and 2015. I don't really remember anymore. I should have looked it up. Um, he and I got invited to participate in an anthology called Dark Duets, which I think was edited by Christopher Golden. And it was, you know, two writers writing long, short stories, novellas. Um, and he and I were, uh, strangely enough, in a bar again. I don't know how that happens. <laughs> Um, and he proposed doing some kind of riff on Thomas the Rhymer and Jonathan being Jonathan at the time said, let's do zombies. And I went, no, we're not going to do zombies. <laughs> I'm not doing a zombie, uh, story about Thomas the Rhymer. Um, so he said, okay, I've got 18 projects on my plate, which he's, he probably has 35 projects <laughs> now. Yeah. Um, that's just the way Jonathan rolls. Um, and I said, okay, well, I'll, I'll take a crack at the thing. And so I started trying to write the origin story of Thomas the Rhymer um, in this sort of universe that we'd kind of not even really fleshed out, just sort of charcoal sketched and um, had no luck writing the origin story. It was just too big a thing to fit into a, a novella and finally wrote a contemporary story about Thomas the Rhymer who's been battling since the 1200s against the elves and the elves are um, not of our world. They're of a different world entirely. And uh, so I, I wrote a draft of a, a story set in the 21st century, handed it off to Jonathan. Um, he ran through it, added about 7,000 more words to it. And I guess it came in around 20,000 words and we sold it to dark duets and went our separate ways but it bugged me that I had all this research material and all of this origin story that I hadn't done anything with. So I got Jonathan's permission to go ahead and play with this on my own and took the origin story material and worked up uh, the origin story of Thomas the Rhymer as a kind of Michael Moorcock eternal champion uh, battling against uh aliens effectively these these elves which are from another passing into our world from another world and uh he's just you know one person fighting this war that nobody even knows is going on right under their noses and that's kind of how it started 
Yeah. And I'll explain for listeners, if you don't know, that Thomas the Rhymer is this character from folklore, and he sort of has episodes and uh, extemporizes verse, which foretells the future. And I guess reading this, your novel, um, it's it sort of like has more of a like Lovecraftian horror kind of cosmic horror kind of um, feel to oh, it than good. I was necessarily expecting from the um, from at least what I know of Thomas the Rhymer. Mm-hmm. So I was just curious how much of how much of this was drawn from the folklore and how much of this is drawn from other sources or just out of your own imagination. Um, a lot of it's out of my own imagination. Um, it's I start with the uh, the Scottish ballad of Thomas the Rhymer, which I think is a one of the child ballads, number 37 or something like that. It's like pushing the number on your jukebox. Um, and uh, so I started with that character, but I immediately sort of flipped the narrative. In the uh, in the ballad, he is sitting on Huntley Bank, uh, um, which is a, off a small uh, river, and he – is introduced in the song to uh, the queen of elves who says, you know, I'll give you a ride. We can go to Elfland. I'll take you with me. And she does. She doesn't mention that the ride to Elfland uh, involves riding a horse through hell and a few other horrible places on the way to Elfland. Um, So she goes on or he goes on a ride with her. Um, and then there is a historical or a supposed historical character named Thomas Learmonth or Learmouth, um, who was the embodiment of Thomas the Rhymer, who apparently had, um, I don't know if they were seizures or what, but he would suddenly spout off these kind of insane um, riddles. Uh, Sort of, sort of along the Nostradamus line that you know you can read it and make it apply to anything you want <laughs> it to because it doesn't really make any sense on its own. Um, but he was famous in the area for uh, for all of these riddles that he just spouted at various times. So I tried to mix the history of of that character and the folklore of that character, and then take the the fantastic side of it and turn it into something that sort of edged into science fiction. And, uh, and I'm delighted that you say it has a kind of Lovecraftian darkness to it too, because that I, I, I wasn't thinking of that, but I'm, I'm glad it's there. Uh, you know, the darkness was certainly intentional in that. Well, like for, for example, there's this pretty horrifying scene where they visit this, this hellish realm with these sort of tree beings, giant yes. tree beings. Is yes. that out of folklore or is that something you invented? That's wholly invented. That's okay. that's not out of folklore. I'm sure it's my nightmare version of the Wizard of Oz or something, but you know, it's uh, combined with J.R.R. Tolkien's giant tree. So um, yeah, no, that was, that was totally out of my, my personal mythography and not, uh, not the ballads. Uh-huh. So yeah. what do you think it is about Thomas the Rhymer as a character that has interested so many novelists and that interests you to to want to retell the story? Well, I, you know, in a way, I didn't want to retell the story. I think that's maybe a distinction right there. Ellen Kushner, a number of years ago, wrote, to, to my mind, the definitive retelling of Thomas the Rhymer uh, from the ballad. And I didn't really want to go there. 
uh, at all because I would have felt like oh, it's already been done uh, to perfection. There's no reason for me to touch that. Um, so I think the fascination, the fascination for me was that in researching uh, the Thomas the Rhymer ballad, um, I also researched uh, another song that's another child ballad, um, number 39A, I think, in his sequence. I don't know. Um, called uh, Tam Lin. And it's very interesting that the, the, well, the songs were written down in two different centuries. They're, they're not close together that way. But in terms of geography, they're right on top of each other. So Tam Lin is, a, is another Scottish Borders ballad that takes place in a, in a place called Carter Hall, which is a small region that's really close to Huntley Bank, where, where Thomas the Rhymer starts out. And um, I thought that's really fascinating that these two are about somebody named Tam. Well, one's about Thomas and one's about Tam. And Tam is just a, a nickname for Tom. Uh, so you've got Tam, or you've got Thomas the Rhymer, whose name in some cases is full name is Thomas Lindsay Rymor IR. R-I-M-O-R, De Erseldun, which is the, the town he was from, which is now Earlston. Um, and then you've got Tam Lin. So you've got Thomas Lindsay and you've got Tam Lin. And I'm going, this is the same person. Um, so in the Tam Lin ballad, uh, the character of Tam has already been taken by the Queen of Elfland. And he has a, starts developing a relationship with a mortal woman named Janet, uh, and explains to her that um, the Queen of Elfland is going to sacrifice him as a tithe. And if she loves him, if she cares about him, she will keep this from happening by uh, pulling him down off of his horse when he appears and hanging on to him no matter what happens. Uh, she has to hold on to him. And so she does this in sort of fairy tale heroine fashion. And he turns into various horrible creatures and whatnot and keeps shape-shifting and finally changes back into himself. And the Queen of Elfland says, I give up. You can keep him and, you know, and rides <laughs> away and disappears. And so Janet gets Tam Lin. Um, and I thought, this is like two parts of the same story. The first part is him riding off with the Queen of Elfland. And the second part is now that he's been there, he's been turned. And the only way he can come back is through the the, the actions of this woman who loves him. So I sort of mashed those two things together because they just seemed like they belong together. Um, and that kind of became the the structure for the first part of the first two thirds, I guess, of the story. Do you, do you know if anyone, like any scholars or anything, have drawn that connection before between Thomas the Rhymer and Tam Lin, or is that something that, as far as you know, has not been explored well, before? I honestly have to assume somebody has has done so, because it was so, to me, it was so overt when I started playing with this. I thought somebody's, I'm sure, written a paper on this or looked into this or, or something. Uh, but I, I didn't go hunting for one, and I haven't found any evidence that anybody actually has. But if they haven't, they should. <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's a fascinating connection, it seems to me. Yeah. And then you, uh, I saw in an interview that you've written a sequel, that you've already, uh, you've, you're sort of putting the finishing touches on a sequel. 
Uh, I am uh, frantically putting the finishing <laughs> touches on a sequel. It's due July 4th. Um, and uh, yeah, I pitched uh, one book to uh, Bain Books and Tony Weisskopf, the, the editor there, um, said she would buy it, but she wanted three books. And so I desperately came up with a second book and, and then with a third book and, and pitched those to her and she she went along with both of those as well. So yeah, I'm just now finishing up book two, which is taking place about a century after the first book. Um, and that sort of started uh, because of an article I read by a, a writer, and I can't even remember the author of the article now, uh, a fantasy writer talking about Robin Hood and how the Robin Hood that we think we know is not the Robin Hood of, of history, of, of what we have as far as history of, of Robin Hood goes. Um, and so all of the versions of Robin Hood anybody's ever seen have basically been the Sir Walter Scott uh, riffs on Robin Hood. And that's not really who Robin Hood was. So I'm kind of having a field day um, going back to the origins of Robin Hood a century after uh, Thomas the Rhymer would have existed and um, trying to, what do I want to say? Trying to map a journey through the world of Robin Hood that nobody's ever played with before. Nobody's ever touched. Um, at the same time that of course I'm writing a story about a character who, who accidentally becomes Robin Hood. So I'm not even writing about Robin Hood and yet I am. Um, and trying to do so at least more historically accurately than than uh, pretty much all the Robin Hoods that Kevin Costner and, uh, <laughs> and everybody else has ever portrayed. Mm. I mean, it's kind of uh, convenient, you know, that in the history of characters go into the realms of fairy and stuff. There's this all. There's always this sort of time warping and Rip Van yes. Winkle kind of thing. So it makes it kind of convenient if you want a character skipping through time. Those yes. things all sort of those ideas all just converge very conveniently. Yeah, I played with that once before. I did uh, two novels based on the Toynbo Cualnia, the uh, the Irish uh, tales of Cúhollín, and there's a sequence in that where he goes into the fairy realm, and uh, basically in a depression, and um, stays in the fairy realm. And of course, the world outside the fairy realm is evolving at a at a, at a much faster pace. And his chariot driver has to drag him out of the fairy realm and back into the real world before he either goes insane or dies. But yeah, it's a lot of, it's interesting how many mythologies have these alternate universes, these worlds, uh, Tirnanog sort of places where time doesn't run the same as it does for us. You say in the, in the acknowledgments, you say, finally, it's my agent uh marie lambda for doggedly representing the project through its various permutations mm -hmm. is there more to say about what those various permutations were um well only that it uh we pitched it to a lot of different publishers and i was tweaking it the whole time we were we were doing that um and it kind of changed shape from where jonathan and i had started out to uh, what I ended up with. So, you know, I started out with the Thomas the Rhymer that he and I had created. And by the end of it, I'd completely changed that character in a number of ways. Um, 
so it kind of went through various reshapings and it garnered a lot of rejections uh, along the way. And, uh, and honestly, I had sort of like gotten to the point of going, well, you know, I'll publish this myself if nobody else publishes this. Um, and, um, and Marie stuck by the book and, and, uh, believed in it and, um, took it to places I didn't expect her to take the book or places where I didn't expect the book to have a shot. And I was surprised that Bain jumped on it and, and delighted that Bain jumped on it because I think I'm having a lot of fun in their world. Yeah. Is it a kind of thing where now in retrospect, it seems good because you, it sort of arrived at the shape that it has now and that wouldn't have happened if it had not had this sort of struggle. Ex- exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It had to find its shape, I guess. So anyway, it found one and that's the one we're stuck with. <laughs> I was also just curious, one of the major characters in the book is named Alpin Waldrop. And I was yes. just wondering if that's a Howard Waldrop uh, reference at all. It wasn't intended to be, but every time I wrote the name Waldrop, I thought Howard. So, and and weirdly enough, at the same time that I was working on that with the character Waldrop, uh, Michael Swanwick invited me to write a story with him um, that had uh, a, a crazy fantasy story of Michael's called uh, "Lock Up Your Chickens and Daughters." Hard and Andy are, are are come to town, and. Um, the main characters in that story effectively are Andy Duncan and Howard Waldrop <laughs> in, uh, in sort of fantastic guys. Um, so at the same time this is going on and I've got a character named Waldrop, I'm writing a version of Howard Waldrop as a fantasy character uh, alongside Michael. So has that story been published yet? Yes, it has. Yeah. It will, uh, in fact, it's going to be in a, a collection of sh- a second collection of my short stories that's coming out, I guess, maybe the end of this year, or early next year, uh, called Beyond Here Be Monsters. Um, and so that's the one collaborative piece that'll show up in that, uh, in that collection of stories. Mm-hmm. Actually, uh, speaking of collaborative pieces, you also had a story in Asimov's um, called True. Boomerang. That you, yes. you want to talk about that? Um, it is unfortunately the last uh, story that I collaborated on with a friend of mine, Bill Johnson, who was also at Clarion in 1975. Um, he and I were uh, were roommates at the University of Iowa. Uh, we both applied to Clarion at the same time and got in. Uh, both of us blamed Joe Haldeman for this. <laughs> um, but uh, – he and you were, I had, were you, you were students of Joe yeah we Haldeman, were students right? of Joe's yeah. yeah Joe was doing a science fiction workshop which uh, required you to write quite a bit of fiction and uh, he told the two of us we should submit the fiction to uh, Clarion and they accepted us which was wonderful um, as you know from your own experience there I'm sure um, yeah so. We'd known each other for a long time, and uh, when I moved to North Carolina, part of the reason I moved to North Carolina was Bill was living in North Carolina, um, and uh, we Bill was one of these amazing people who would periodically call me up just for fun and say, I want to tell you something that's going to hurt your brain, and then he would tell me some arcane science scientific piece that he'd lifted from science news or some other source that was just bizarre. 
And he'd go, what if we did such and such with this? What if we did that? And a few years ago, he he called me out of the blue and started talking to me about slippery muons. And I'm going, okay, Bill, slippery muons. What are we going to do with slippery muons? And so we went back and forth on this, and we both were in love with uh, these novellas that had been published in the early 70s um, about a, an assassin named Augustus Mandrell. And I think the books were called something like For Murder, I Charge More, and the other one was called <laughs> All the Bloody Cheek, and I can't remember the title of the third one. But they were these ridiculous parodies of, of, of sort of spy fiction that felt like they'd been, you know, um, wrenched out of the 19th century or something. They were just really weird. And we both loved them. So we decided we wanted to write an homage uh, to the Augustus Mandrell character. So we came up with a character of a nameless assassin uh, in the future dealing with uh, the market in slippery muons. And, um, and we called it uh, Three Can Keep a Secret if Two of Them Are Dead. And the story was pretty well received. I think Gardner Dozois, right before his death, was going to put it in one of his best of the year anthologies. I think we ended up just with an honorable mention. But um, we uh, we both kind of were lackadaisical about the collaborations, and we shouldn't have been. We should have been collaborating like crazy. Um, so Bill had done another one of his things where he sent me an email you know, going, this is going to hurt your brain and talk to me about the coldest spot in the universe. And we started riffing on a story idea based on the idea of the, the coldest spot in the universe, which is the boomerang nebula and went back and forth and back and forth on it and, uh, came up with almost a point by point, um, structure of the story that we were going to write together. And Bill had suffered his whole life with Marfans. So for anybody who, who knows that, it's a really bad condition for your blood vessels uh, where they, they basically start to come apart. And, um, and he dodged that for a very long time. And right after we had sort of structured the story out, uh, he went into the hospital for a simple checkup or something. And... Uh, pretty much didn't come out. Um, so I had all of the notes for that story and I thought, oh, I've got to write this. I've got to write this story. I can't just set this aside because Bill's gone. And Sheila Williams loved Bill's fiction. He'd won a Hugo for a story that he published in Asimov's magazine a number of years ago called We Will Drink a Fish Together. Um, and so I sat down and wrote the story that he and I would have written anyway. And I regret that we hadn't written more or that we didn't have more ideas that were just sitting around waiting to be used. But as I say, we were both sort of, oh, we'll get around to this. It'll be okay. We're in no hurry. And uh, it turned out not to be the case. That's interesting. So so you wrote the entire text of the story. There was just notes. There were just that. notes. Yeah. Very, very detailed notes. But yes. Huh, because cause the story has such a hard SF flavor compared to the other pieces of yours that I've written. So I was sort of imagining that, that Bill had done sort of the more hard SF stuff and you would maybe, you know, focus Absolutely. on the characters or the language or, or something, but yeah, 
all um, of that all of that hard SF stuff in that story is stolen from Bill Johnson. That's basically okay. basically my story, and I'm sticking to it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, research is research. So hard science to me was just one one more thing that needed researching. And, and in this case, in this story, the research was all done. We knew exactly what what the temperatures had to be, what the conditions had to be, all of the all of the science aspects of it. Um, and in fact, we'd worked out, I think that was, the story I wrote was maybe the third or fourth um, generation of stru- story structure that we'd come up with. We initially started out with our team discovering that the Boomerang Nebula was basically the research ship graveyard, that they found one dead research ship, alien ship, first contact, and then as they're traveling around this planet, they found others and realized that every ship that had arrived here had died. So we had a completely different explanation for what was going on and why, and we're about to write that story and Bill sends me an email that says something along the lines of, we can't do it because it turns out the conditions at the Boomerang Nebula have only existed like that for 2,000 years. So there couldn't possibly be this pileup of research vessels. We went, okay. <laughs> and so we changed it to just the one alien research ship and and that was the structure of the story that we had plotted out and and worked out in in pretty fine detail, and uh, and that's what I wrote. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a terrific hard F, hard SF story. I always love this, uh, you know, the derelict spacecraft. You know, the you know you find the derelict spacecraft, and you know, the the question is what happened to them. And in this right. story, yeah, this 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 derelict alien spacecraft is orbiting above this extremely cold, um, sort of mysterious alien ocean kind of thing and so there's a right. lot of uh a lot of cool mysteries uh right off the bat of of, of what's going on in this story well thank you you can you can we can both blame all of that on bill johnson so it wouldn't be that story without him yeah yeah um i, I guess yeah I, I don't know if there's anything else you wanted to say about the story i guess we don't want to give away too much about it but um is, is should we uh, should we move on, or is there anything else you wanted to say about Boomerang? I don't think so. I think people should go read it and discover it, and and have a good time with it. I don't want to, I don't want to give away any spoilers. That's for sure. Yeah. So it's in the current. I'll say it's in the current issue of Asimov's magazine, which I don't think I wrote it down. It's like the June July issue or something like that. It's the it's the May June issue. Yeah. May June yeah. issue. So yeah. it may not actually be current anymore. I don't know, but. It's probably still available up on their website. Okay, cool. Yeah, no, I, I definitely recommend it if you like Hard SF. This is a really, really good example of the form. Thanks. And thank um, you on Bill's behalf, too. Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess I wanted to ask uh, about some of these other short stories that I read. Um, sure. So, like, one of the humor pieces is called Road to Recovery. Yes. And it's sort of like in the mode of the um bob hope bing crosby road movies which yes i've actually never seen i I should want you know my favorite um series growing up was the robert asprin myth adventures series which i know he he modeled on the those road movies so i was i was reading this i was like why did i never watch this i guess when i was a kid it was kind of hard to find 
yeah. find those maybe. Yeah. But do you, yeah. do you rec- should I go check out those the road <laughs> movies? Do you think they they hold up for a I think modern you can, audience? You can you can probably watch one of them and you <laughs> go, okay, I have now seen all the road movies. It's fine. Um, yeah, there. It was it was one of these things. I think I even said this in the afterword in the book that Connie Willis had stolen uh, screwball comedies. She'd run off and written all of these screwball comedy stories. So I felt like, well, screwball comedy in general is is now, you know, Connie's domain. And John Kessel, damn him, um, <laughs> had written uh, Faust Feathers. So he had taken a, a, a Marx Brothers structure and written a, a short story on that um, set in uh, – basically, he's, he's stuck the Marx Brothers in Hamlet. Um, which is hilarious. Um, so I felt like, okay, I've got to do something else. And I'm not doing the Three Stooges and I'm not doing Abbott and Costello. What am I going to do? Um, so I thought, I, I love Bob Hope and being Crosby Road Pictures because they're they're just so terrible. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and so I wanted to sort of put all the characters in there that uh, – that you would see in a, in a Hope and Crosby road picture. So I've got a Peter Laurie kind of character, a Dorothy Lemoore character. I've even got a, uh, I, I kind of bend it into the world of the, the Maltese Falcon. So there's a Sydney Green Street kind of character. I mean, there are all these characters from the period, as well as trying to mimic Bob and Bing back and forth, you know, dialogue where they're always trying to one up each other. Um, and so I just had a ball writing it. It was it was just a how many jokes can you put down on a page hmm. kind of a, of story. And I guess the the formula, as I understand it, is that, that you have these two characters and they're sort of swindlers and they always are you know trying to you know swindle their way into some big uh, score or something and always get themselves into tons of trouble and things just spiral out of control and you know yeah get, they're get crazier. Ne- they're, they're never very good at it. Yes, that's how it works. Not that different in some respects than uh, the story I wrote with Michael. But yeah, the the one w- with the Andy Duncan. Yes, with Andy Howard Duncan Waldrop. and Howard yeah. Waldrop as our as our characters. Yes, yeah. Uh-huh. Um. So yeah. So so that I thought was interesting. And then you have. I mean, one of my favorite stories in the book is called "The Girlfriends of Dorian Gray." Yes. And yes. I thought it was interesting. There's, there's, and there's another story, also one of my favorites, called "Some Things Are Better Left," and yes. both, and that also has a reference to Dorian Gray. So it seems like the the Dorian Gray character must uh, uh, really resonate for you, or have some. Uh, it fascinates you really like that, me. or yeah, I do. Um, of course, the the girlfriends of Dorian Gray came about because of a comment I made at dinner um, at uh, Michael Swanwick's house, and. Uh, Having having opened my mouth and made the comment, then his wife looked at me and said, "Well, you know, now that you've said that, you have to write the story." And I went, "Oh, yeah, okay." So, well, what was the what was the comment? Well, we knew a an editor in um, in the genre, and I won't say who that was, who had um, gone through a divorce and was dating uh, and had no interest we think in in getting married again but everybody he dated um gained like 50 pounds within within a, a few months 
of going out with him. And we thought, this is a very strange phenomenon. We're watching this happen. And of course, he really liked to eat. He was he was somebody who would go someplace and order everything on the menu and eat like crazy and and not gain any weight. Um, and and yet the women that he was taking to these restaurants would all with as I say, within a few months gain weight. So I'm probably gonna get in trouble for this. But that was the comment I made. It was like the girlfriends of Dorian Gray and, and Michael's wife looked at me and said, you have to write that story now that you've, you've opened your mouth and said that. So that's what happened. Yeah. It's just a real, so the premise of the story is that, yeah, there's this guy and he's, he has this magic spell that he's acquired that makes, you know, that he can, and he, he's a, a gourmand. He just really likes to eat all the best food and drink the best wine and everything. And, yes. and this magic operates in such a way that, that he doesn't gain any of the weight from it, but his, you know, his romantic partners do. Yes. Uh, and it's just, I, yeah, I just thought that was a really, um, you know, original, compelling premise for a, for a short story. I just, I just, yeah, I was instantly grabbed by, by that oh, idea. Thank you. Yeah. He's, he's sort of, yeah, he's Mr. Creosote, except that he doesn't suffer the way Mr. Creosote does. He passes it on to somebody else across the table, and then he's and he's he's just evil. He's just absolutely evil about the whole thing, too. He's um, you know has no conscience whatsoever. It's just oh, it's a shame. Too bad for her, and he'll pick somebody else up and start this whole thing over again. So I, I enjoyed writing a character who was that sort of depraved, I guess, for lack of another term. And the, I mean, it, this this is mentioned in the intro, I think, but uh, the story demonstrates a, a amazing knowledge of fine food and drink. It seems <laughs> to me. I mean, <laughs> I totally. I don't know how much research you did on that, but uh, I totally believed that. Uh, you know. That yeah, character. I did it. I did a fair amount of research and, and I like to cook. So some of those things I've made and, uh, and some of those things I've eaten in restaurants, but yeah, it was a lot. So of did, fun. It was a lot of fun to research. The, the, the story does go in some kind of surprising directions. Did you sort of, did the story come to you sort of fully formed or did you sort of um, develop that, the, the ending over time as you thought more about it? Um, I had no idea how that story was going to end when I started writing it, absolutely none. So the appearance of, of his, what do I want to say? I don't want to give too much away again. The appearance of the, the person he meets was unexpected um, by me as well as by him. I mean, without giving too much, did you, did you know who she was when you started, when you introduced that character or did, did that develop as you, when I by the time I introduced her, I knew who she was. By then, I'd kind of gone, oh, okay, I see where, where I'm going with this story. But uh, until she stepped onto the page, I didn't really quite know who that was or how I was going to portray her. Um, it was just kind of this idea of older magic trumps, you know, newer magic. So, Yeah. Yeah, so I, I so I really like that story, and also mentions you know the story. Some things are better left. the The premise is that there's a guy, and he goes to his thirtieth, I think, high school reunion. Yes. and there's a sort of a, a kid who used to bully him, um, who's now who who seems to have not aged 
uh, yes. as much as you would think he should have. You know, he's just look, looks very youthful and and everything. And so, so again, that's a real uh, a premise that really uh, grabbed me right away. And I was I was curious to ask you about this um, this author's note. You say. Uh, in my opinion, there is no vampire in this story. Nevertheless, a few years after its original publication, it ended up in the anthology Isaac Asimov's Vampires. Yes. Uh, you want to talk about talk about that? <laughs> well, it was, Gardner decided it was a vampire, and that was the end of that. And I'm not going to say no if you want to give me money to reprint my story. So <laughs> I went, yeah, sure, sure, of course, there's a vampire. Mm -hmm. Yeah, whatever you say. So I never thought of him as a vampire. I just thought of him as somebody who's found a way to prolong his life um, by sacrificing others. So he isn't so much drinking their blood as using their blood to uh, there's, there's sort of a an potential edge of Madame Bathory here or something rather than uh, a traditional vampire as such. And this yeah. was sort of my revenge too on not going to my 20th high school reunion. So I wrote that story instead of going to a high school reunion. <laughs> so it was, it I was mean, that seems, seems fair, you know, uh, seems f fairly close to a vampire. I mean, I could see that, you know, yeah, not, not being out of place in a vampire. Yeah. I, I, and I never really said, I just kind of left it open as far as how you want to interpret it. That's fine. And Gardner interpreted that as a vampire. And I went, yes, okay, definitely vampire. It is sort of a funny thing about theme anthologies and how stories can can interact with the theme anthology in a way that they wouldn't if you were reading it elsewhere. You know, like if the yes the the plot twist is that somebody's a vampire and it's in a vampire anthology. You know, that can sort of completely change the way that you read the story. <laughs> it's funny you say that because I wrote a story a number of years later for an anthology that Daryl Schweitzer uh, edited called "The Secret History of Vampires," and the premise of the anthology was you take some real uh, important event out of history and you insert vampires into it, but it still has to end up, you know, the way it ended up in history. And yeah, you can't really write a story where you go, look, surprise, they're vampires because that's the theme <laughs> of the anthology. So everybody knows that already. There's, there's nothing you can do with that uh, premise. You've got to go some other direction. So I, decided to write uh, what I refer to as the thumbnail version of the Iliad um, in in epic verse, but introducing vampires into the mix so that the city of Troy falls in part because of the vampires. So sorry, what was what was that what was the name of that story? Uh, it's um, the story is called Il Met in Ilium. It's uh, it'll actually be in this collection that's coming out um, sometime this year or early next year. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, I'll say the name of that uh, collection again for listeners is beyond here be monsters. Yep. So everyone keep an eye out for that. I mean, um, a couple of these stories deal with these sort of intriguing historical mysteries. So for example, there's the Jack the Ripper story where mm -hmm. I guess in real, in real history, there's this question of why was something melted in the stove at one of the the murder scenes doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Right. And Correct. Yeah. I guess, yeah. Um, I, do, you, do you want to talk about that? Um, well, it, again, this was for a, uh, this was written originally for an anthology that uh, Gardner, Dozois, and Susan Casper co-edited uh, of Jack the Ripper stories. And Gardner was a real aficionado of uh, 
of Ripper stories uh, and was fascinated by Jack the Ripper uh, like crazy and was of the opinion that if, if the Scotland Yard ever finally released the name of the, the person who was Jack the Ripper, we'd all go, who the hell is that? Hmm. Because all the, you know, all the suspects, all the people they've picked out don't really ever line up properly or weren't in the right place at the right time, et cetera, et cetera. So there are all these hypothetical uh, Jack the, Jacks the Ripper, but none of them quite line up. Um, but in the the last uh, the last murder that everybody knows he committed, um, he melted something. Yeah, in the fireplace that was so melted at a temperature so hot that everything about it melted. It just formed into like a puddle of liquid metal. Nobody has any idea what it was. Uh, There have been theories that, oh, he cut the heart out of his victim and, you know, burned it in the, uh, in the hearth or something like that. But you're going, yes, but that wouldn't melt things this way. So it's, it's one of those just weird little factoids uh, in the in the story of Jack the Ripper that has bugged me and bothered Gardner to some extent, I think, too, that it just didn't have an explanation. So I tried to give it one. So like a cursed pocket watch? Yeah, it's a possible exactly. Explanation. Yeah. Sure, why not? <laughs> that's um, as, that's as good as a bad teapot, you know. So yes, right. Yeah. And then in this, the, the Edgar Allan Poe story in the Sunken Museum, there's this historical mystery that I guess um, shortly before he died, Poe was sort of wandering delirious through the streets, shouting for somebody named Reynolds, and nobody knows who Reynolds might have been. Yeah, nobody knew who Reynolds was. I think he actually just woke up on his deathbed, basically, and said or either said something to Reynolds or spoke of somebody named Reynolds, thought he was addressing somebody named Reynolds. I can't remember at this point. It's been too long. And that was my first published story. So it's been a while since I researched that. Um, but yes, well, so in, in the author's note, you s- days. Yeah. in the author's note, you say, now there's a pretty fair theory about what happened to him, but I'm not going to tell you what it is. Yeah. Uh, uh, though it's probably true. Mine's more fun. Yeah. So. Yeah, there was a, at the time I wrote that, there was somebody had come forth with a theory that he had rabies and didn't know it. That this woman he was seeing, I think in Philadelphia, had a small dog and that the dog had been bitten by some rabid dog and had bitten him and that he had contracted rabies and had no idea. And so went into a delirium and never came out. And they had a lot of sort of circumstantial evidence that backed that up. So that was a big deal at the time. I'm not sure it survived. Uh, I think there may have been evidence to the contrary or something else. But at, at the particular moment that I wrote the afterward of that story, it was it was in the papers, sort of like here here's the here's the explanation for what happened to Edgar Allan Poe. But how how would the rabid dog? How would that explain the Reynolds thing? It wouldn't. He would. He would have okay. been. Hallucina- okay. He would have been hallucinating. Uh, so who knows? Yeah, it yeah. doesn't really explain the Reynolds thing. I mean, he got on. He got on the wrong train. He went to the wrong city. You know, he uh, he took the walking stick of the man whose house he'd been at having dinner. 
Um, there are just a lot of parts of it that don't really line up or make any sense at all. Um, so, and we'll, we'll, we'll never know. It's, it's the Jack the Ripper thing all over again. We're never going to find out what, what really happened to him. Yeah. But we can't rule out time travel. We can't. Right. Yep. That's right. Yeah. And, and I didn't. So <laughs> <laughs> I remember, uh, he actually, one of my clarion instructors was, was Tim Powers and he writes oh, yeah. these sort of secret history books where he loved Tim Powers. Yeah. Yeah, where he, you know, he finds some weird, inexplicable thing in history and then comes up with some gonzo, you know, supernatural science fictional explanation for it. Absolutely. And he says there's there's always a, a point in his research where he starts wondering if if his crazy theory is actually true because things seem to be falling into place, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yes, you've done way. the research and you've lined it up and then you go, wait, what if that's really worked? <laughs> I could see Tim doing that. <laughs> Yeah, no, I've loved his stuff ever since the Anubis Gates. I just think he's a fabulous writer. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The Anubis Gates, one of my all-time favorite books. Yeah, if, uh, same, same here. Yeah. People haven't read it. Yeah, it's um, really sort of the first, I guess, steampunk, or it's it's being it has it has been hung with the mantle of being the the original steampunk novel uh, before there was steampunk. Yeah, yeah, definitely sort of proto-steampunk for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, we're running a little short on time. Do you want to, uh, you mentioned to me um, over email that you had been doing this Liars Club um, oddcast, a, a podcast. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Um, well, it's it's effectively in mothballs now, although the, the episodes from it are still available online. Um, a group of the, the Philadelphia Liars Club, uh, about four or five of us, uh, started doing uh, author interview podcasts, not unlike this, uh, but with, you know, four insane people drinking beer while <laughs> they're asking you questions. Um, and we, I guess we blew through 200 plus episodes of it before we finally hung up the uh, the towel. Yeah, I listened to the John Kessel one last night. I thought it was really fun. Yeah, usually we have a good time. We we want the authors to do something more than just talk about their books, sort of riff on different questions and things. And John, yeah, John's was a lot of fun. Karen Fowler's was a lot of fun, and uh, and we got to ask questions about their process in in ways that you frequently don't talk to writers. I mean, you may talk to writers about, but frequently <laughs> I hear writers interviewed a lot of times the the aspects of the process that they actually use versus the process that we're all taught uh, don't get front and center. So we frequently sort of tried to drag that kind of thing out there and and get them to talk about things in a in a different way. So why did you stop doing it? You just everyone got busy with other stuff or everybody got busy with other stuff. We just reached the point where we couldn't get four people with the same day off, you know, for months on. Oh that. yeah. And we just, we just finally pulled the plug on it. Cause it was, it was getting crazy. Now doing a podcast as, as I know, as well as anybody is extremely time consuming. So yeah. Yeah. yeah I, that happens a lot. Pod fading. I, it's called uh, pod fading. Yeah. We've definitely pod faded then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I guess one other thing I was just curious to ask about is, so one of the stories in the book is called Touring Jesus World. Yes. And um, some uh, a character creates a theme park to uh, to 
educate uh, the public about the true historical uh, facts of the life of Jesus. Yes. Uh, and doesn't go over well, as you might <laughs> imagine. No. Um, yeah. Yes. But in, in the author's note, you, you say, uh, uh, I'm just mentioning it in a further attempt to get myself in trouble. So I was just wondering if uh, if you got in any trouble from that story or or any of your stories. Uh, I, I ha- no, I didn't actually get in any trouble. I expected it it would, but it's basically somebody, and and that's another story that took a lot of research. Um, so everything in the story that's advanced by the theme park owner is more or less historically accurate, according to lots of books on the historical Jesus. Um, but he discovers, of course, very quickly, and that's the premise of the story, that nobody's really interested in the historical Jesus. They just want their Jesus, their way. And so just because you have all of these facts uh, and all this information, it doesn't mean anybody's interested. They're, they're sort of, if anything, less interested than, uh, than if you did a ridiculous theme park. And so he's comes to the realization at the end of it that he needs to create the ridiculous theme park and proposes to do that, at which point my narrator runs screaming from the park. But <laughs> yeah. It was funny because the, uh, the illustration sort of gives, uh, gives the ending of the story away a little bit, but I wasn't... Yes, true. I saw the illustration. I'm like, that looks a lot like Elvis. Uh, <laughs> yes. Is that just yes. me? Is that just my imagination or does that look a lot like Elvis on yeah. the... On the cross, yeah. Well, that was that was another brilliant piece of uh, Jason Van uh, Hollander's artwork. Yeah, it was funny because in that story, both in that story and in the Madonna of the Maquiladora story, uh, yes. it mentions this fact that the Virgin Mary was not sort of decided to be, a, you know, was not declared to be a virgin until hundreds of years after the the, the time of the of Jesus. Yes. So it right. seems like that's a fact that kind of made an impression on you, were. You know, stuck in your mind. Yeah, that did. I used it twice. So yes, absolutely. This this whole idea that that the Virgin Mary was voted into existence by uh, an emperor, and uh, and the wing of the church that had influence over him. So yeah, up until then, there was no such person. Anyway, do. You- yeah, were you were you? Do you have like a Catholic background or anything like that, or is it just something that interests you? It just it just interests me, and a lot of my close friends, John Kessel included, uh, do have a Catholic background, and we've talked about this stuff quite a bit. Um, so I feel like I have a Catholic background. <laughs> I'm surrounded by Catholic writers who will tell me everything th- that I need to know about, you know, life under nuns and uh, that sort of thing. Yeah, in the interview I listened to last night, John Castle, he mentioned that one of the things that he and James Patrick Kelly bonded over uh, when they first met was that they had both been raised Catholic and yes, sort of right. were still processing that or something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, I think so. Yeah, yes, they they both know guilt very well. Yes. <laughs> um, all right, cool. So I think we're we're pretty much out of time. So um, do you have any other projects you're working on that you want to let people know about, or any final thoughts or anything? Um, well, I'm about to, well, I'm finishing up the second book, as I say, and I'm about to embark on the third book of, uh, of Reimer. And then after that, I have a Western in my back pocket that I want to, a supernatural Western that I want to revise and try to uh, find a home for. So, Like a weird Western? 
Yes, a very weird Western. <laughs> um, just to be different. I, I, I wrote that while we were waiting to uh, get feedback on one of the earlier incarnations of Rhymer. So uh, while that was going on, I was penning this this sort of crazy Western. Is there anything else you can say about like kind of does it deal with a particular character or uh, location or anything like that? Um, the location is entirely invented, although it's a piece of Colorado, the Colorado Territory, um, and it involves shape shifting and it involves uh, a dubious massacre. So I'll just not go any further than that. All right, cool. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and is there a title for the Rhymer sequel, or is that still to be determined? Uh, the third book, I'm not sure what the what the title will be. The second book is going to be Rhymer colon Hood. So, um, so I don't know if we'll keep going with that theme, and the third book will be Rhymer colon something else. I <laughs> don't know. Um, I, I had a working title for it, but I'm not sure it's going to stand. It was just so that I knew that. It, I had another book over there in the corner waiting to be dealt with. Yeah. All right. No, that's, that's all sounds great. And again, in, in the short story collection that'll be coming out, I think it says 2024 on, on here, yeah, but beyond it's called is. beyond here be monsters. And I'm definitely looking forward to that. Cause yeah, there's a bunch of other really cool stories in here that we didn't even have time to get to. Um, well, thanks. but, uh, thanks. I guess I'll just throw out the story of Lizaveta. Uh, oh, yes. was another one I just really loved. So uh, definitely everyone should check that out. Um, but yes, uh, but we're all out of time. So I think we're going to have to wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Gregory Frost about his books, Attack of the Jazz Giants and Other Stories and Rhymer. So Greg, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Gregory Frost for joining us on the show. This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy was made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please support us on Patreon over at patreon.com geeks or via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarrkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.